I'm Bianca Vivione, and this is Ask Viv. So I'm really glad that you're tuning into episode three because this is a really special time of the year that's perfect for self-reflection. It's really a time to reflect on what the past cycles of this year have brought to you and what you're going to do with them moving forward with your life. I think that the older that I get, the faster the years go by, but also the richer that they become and the more fulfilling that they become, which means that I like my life, which I think is a really important thing to say to myself as the year rounds up, because despite my shortcomings and failures, of which there were many this year, I can truly look at myself and say, wow, you're a better woman. And I think that's something that makes me really emotional because there's times in your life where you're constantly questioning if you really like yourself. And there's times in my own life where I'm saying, Bianca, do you like your life? And there were some times in my life where I genuinely said no. And those were times of difficult self-confrontation where I had to say, okay, so what are you going to do to save your own life? That's something that's been on my mind a lot as the year comes to an end. I was just talking to a friend yesterday about a tweet that I made earlier this year that said self-intervention is more important than self-care. And she asked me to clarify what I meant by that. And I said that self-intervention is more important than self-care because I think that self-care has become a real commodified phrase that a lot of people in these creative communities and social media communities use to just describe a process of pacification where you think constantly, how do I get to the next day? How do I just be okay for now? And sometimes that comes with very practical things like, oh, I'm going to do a face mask or, oh, I'm going to do my hair or I'm going to stay off social media or I'm going to rest. But these are all just temporary remedies. They don't actually get down to the causes of pain or frustration. And they don't actually tell you to seek Uh, mitigating those causes or diminishing those causes, but they don't really require the same kind of discipline that self-confrontation does. They don't ever require you to ask, do I like my life? Do I like my family? Do I like who I'm becoming? Do I like my body? What am I doing to myself as far as my health? Who am I actually sleeping with? Do I like my romantic partner? Are they actually hurting me in ways that I don't really understand yet? Those are questions that I've had to ask myself this year. Those are questions that I've really had to ask myself. And I think the thing about self-confrontation and self-intervention is that those things broke me down. And the difference between that and processes of self-care is that self-care doesn't bring pain. I think the worst thing about the way that self-care is sold is that it realistically tells people that they can go into the world to mitigate the pain that's inside of themselves, which I just think is a distinct impossibility that only produces more pain. And this is really a problem that our entire generation seems to have. I think that's why I always say that Solange's Crane in the Sky is really the song that's the song of this generation because in it she talks about how she tries to sex it away she tries to shop it away like she's talking about the pain and that ever-present sort of visage of pain that we have that we refuse to deal with and how you have to deal with it or else it completely consumes you and you have to also get rid of the idea that's inherent to self-care and that idea of just being okay 
that it's impossible to move on from pain. I think that something about self-care is that it's constantly telling you that if you can just get to the next day, if you can just be okay, then you're doing well. And maybe that's true for short periods of time, but it's not true in general. Unless you learn to desire pain, you're always going to have long-term pains. You're going to be in a constant state of mourning and you're going to convince yourself that happiness is close to impossible. But these are things that I just don't subscribe to and I just don't think are true. I mean, just last year in 2016, one of my high school best friends was murdered. He was stabbed to death and it was something that at first I wanted to harbor and just say this is something that you should hold on to forever because this is something that will be become part of a narrative about yourself and how strong you've been and how much you've lost. But the thing is, is that not only was that not very honoring to this friend's memory, but it was also just, did I really want to be mad forever? Did I really want to mourn forever? There's nothing natural about mourning forever. As much as this generation tries to tell you that trauma is inherent and that victimhood is an eternal status, it's not. Even if you're not able to let things go, you're able to live a life with pain without succumbing to it, without it owning you in that way. And until you deal with self-intervention and learn to appreciate them for what they are, then you're going to be constantly stuck in that state of, well, how do I get to tomorrow? Well, how do I be okay with that? And that's something that I wouldn't wish for anybody. So for the new year, I wish you that freedom of self and I wish you self-confrontation. Um, and I also wish you self-care and good days of just indulging in the things that make you feel good. But as in all things, awasat, meaning the path of moderation, the middle way. So with that being said, I'm going to get right into these questions because I know that that's my favorite part. So the first question comes, Dear Viv, as I graduate college, I am thinking about how I will be a gentrifier anywhere I go. As someone who has been a victim of gentrification in my childhood and how much pain it's caused my family, I know how important it is to be attentive to what I'm doing to a community when I move in. How do I reconcile my thoughts about gentrification after college? So for this, I would say in all things, firstly, you have to take personal responsibility. Don't say that you'd be a gentrifier everywhere you go because it's not true. If you are from Wisconsin and you move back to Wisconsin, you're not going to be a gentrifier there. You're only going to be a gentrifier if you enter into a neighborhood, if you're white, or if you have a higher socioeconomic status, you're going to change the makeup of the neighborhood through your own buying power. That's what gentrification is. It's not a hapstance, isolated phenomenon that's happening to white people. It is something that's happening to communities on a wider level because of displacement and socioeconomic subjugation. So just recognize first what gentrification is and how you're participating in it, because that's how you reconcile with it. Second of all, you have to learn what it really means to be a part of a community. You already know how you're changing the community by moving into it, but how are you willing to let it change you? Are you going to really invest yourself in this community? Are you going to get to know the people in this community? Are you not just going to know the people on your block or the super? Are you going to go to the local talent shows at the middle school? Are you going to choose the bodega over the Whole Foods? Are you going to truly invest in these people? And I think this becomes a larger question that's not just about gentrification or even gentrifiers, but a larger question of what it means to be rooted in this generation that is so concerned with uprootedness, so concerned with constant migration, constant travel, 
and not really knowing anything about home and not really knowing about what it means to build a community because they're so invested on virtual and online communities that they don't really put anything into real life communities and don't know what it means to show up at community centers, at governing boards, at local elections, at neighborhood Christmas parties, at church meetings, because they don't want to know. And until people really understand what it means to be concerned with home, which I fear our generation will not really understand until they have to be parents, then we're going to constantly have these questions of how do I create a meaningful home out of a place that I don't belong and that I don't know if it wants me. Dear Viv, do you think there is an intersection between being an independent thinker and a loner or an introvert? I was wondering because I feel that I'm both and a girl who is always living in the confines of her mind yet has rapid thoughts and ideas flowing in her head every minute of every day. I have some friends, but it's hard for me to connect with people for various reasons. How do I become proud of this revelation? I really think that it's more than anything more so than being about pride, it's about accepting who you are as a fact of the matter. Introvertism is something that you really can't change. I am an introvert, and it's not that I'm proud of it, as much as knowing that that's a fact of the matter has helped me navigate social relations with people. Because I don't think that being an introvert means that you don't like being around people. I think that it means that when you have a certain amount of energy, you go around people and they drain that energy. I think that when you're an extrovert, when you go around people, you gain energy and being by yourself is an energy draining mechanism. That's what I think the difference is between being an introvert and an extrovert. As far as I say, do I think that there's an intersection between being, being an independent thinker and being an introvert? No, but there is an intersection between being an independent thinker and understanding what it means to be alone. You have to be able to be alone in order to be independently thinking about anything. Because like I said, self-confrontation is a very lonely process and it comes in times of isolation. I mean, the thing is in every Abrahamic religion, almost always when they're delivering the message of a miracle or a prophetic text of some sort, the prophets that receive them are always alone. They're always by themselves because you can't really receive divine information if you're constantly around other people, especially because you're supposed to be the medium that delivers divine revelation or independent thoughts to other people. So insofar as that, I would say no, there's not a relationship between being an introvert, which is a very technical personality type, and being a so-called independent thinker. But in order to achieve independent thought, yes, you do have to like to be alone. But independent thought can also come through collaboration and cultivation with others because some of my best revelations have come from just sitting around with my closest friends and talking about theories about life that we have or things that we're thinking about in our life. And sometimes it's through the interaction of others and the collaborative process of creating community with others that you achieve thought that you could not achieve by yourself. And I truly, truly believe that more than anything. Thank God for friends. Dear Viv, how do you find the discourse around art and protest being inherent to Blacks and people of color's work? I believe that people discuss this in a manner that is reactionary, where we make art because we are mad or bitter or whatever. It doesn't take into account how art and protest relate to a form of solace and meditation on our current state, a cathartic release. Well, I wouldn't say that the issue is that people believe that Black people's work is in protest or that it's in reaction to being mad or bitter. I would say that 
The bigger issue is that it's such a limited definition of protest. I mean, I don't know any good artist of any race over any historical period whose art was not in some way a protest to some kind of condition of life. The thing is, is that black condition of life is especially unique in its tragedy and comedy, and so in that it often informs our work. But I also would not say that all black artwork is purely referential or purely reactionary to some sort of anger or bitterness or even social concept. I really think that black people can create whole on abstractions. I would say that I create work that is wholly non-referential sometimes. It actually comes from something that's much more interior and much more metaphysical than blackness. It comes from other kinds of pain and pe peculiar kinds of happiness that actually cannot be ascribed to race. But of course, as a visual consumer, you will see it as, oh, this is a black artist and this is what a black person would feel. And this is something that I think about often that this is a real issue with artists making art for their audience. I constantly say that this is the difference between an artist and a quote unquote creative, that an artist must distrust their audience in order to make genuinely artistically honest work. You cannot be wondering if your art will be perceived as reactionary or protesting because in doing that, you're creating a product, not an artwork. You're already conceiving what the audience will think or conceptualize your art to be and in that it's already tainted in some way. I think that the audience and the artist have to be two very separate systems that interact at very specific moments in order to make good artwork, for lack of a better term. And so I would say that the discourse is bland as most discourse is surrounding identity politics, but that we should work as black artists to not really consider those discourses when we're creating work. Unless, of course, your point of an artist is to gain an audience, in which case I would say you should just not be making art. Dear Viv, what is it like being a black woman at Columbia? Also, what is the overall black community like at Columbia University? <laughs> this is the funniest question that I have ever received. The black community at Columbia is a pretty interesting community. I would say that I entered college at a very interesting time because I got to college in 2014, which is right when Black Lives Matter started happening. And it was pretty fascinating because the black community at Columbia is highly stratified by class and a lot of the black people at Columbia come from higher socioeconomic statuses or just the suburbs. Um, and so you find them trying to find political identities and political grounding in a time where um, everything was just so politically charged and everyone wanted to be as black as possible. But as the years went on, I found that that kind of revolutionary facade that they had sold to me my freshman year of college really dissipated. I mean, these people were not about their politics in any meaningful way. And in fact, they were just like most black suburban kids, which is lacking a sense of self, not really understanding what it means to be black as far as the cultural black centers of America go, i.e. the South and urban areas, which I had always grown up in and always lived. So I couldn't relate at all. Um, but also, black people at Columbia made my life a living hell for a good year. They made it so terrible to be poor. They made it so hard. I remember I got into a fight that I won't even really get into, but I got into a fight with some people that actually ended up getting me kicked out of my housing my junior year of college. And during that fight, I had black girls at Columbia call me a free lunch hoe because I had written about what it was like 
to be marked as somebody who received free lunch growing up and how that sort of marking in the public education system was something that made me distrust middle class blacks. And so they, they started calling me a free lunch hoe like as a derogatory nickname. They made fun of the hood that I was from. They were talking about my mother, my friend's mothers. Like they're just a real disrespectful group, but I don't necessarily think it's because they're malicious. I genuinely think it's because they are so unexposed to real life in every single way. So yeah, in that I would say that the black community at Columbia is especially strange compared to any black community I've ever met in my entire life, but that's probably just because black suburbia that are outside urban centers are very strange. Like I have no idea what's going on in black America in Virginia or the black America in, you know, out in Illinois, outside of Chicago. Like even when I was in the suburbs of Atlanta, it was still Atlanta. And then I grew up in East Oakland. So I actually had no idea that these black types of black people even existed, but I don't really care for them. And let's just say uh, I'm not giving any alumni checks as far as being a black woman at Columbia, uh, after I diverged from the black communities at Columbia, it was actually pretty great in the sense that I've had really great professors. And I would say that when I stopped relying on my identity to show my capabilities and to be recognized only for my intellectualism rather than for who I thought I was as a black person, I got a lot more recognition um, and a lot more appreciation in the classroom. But that just took me valuing education for what it is and taking it at face value. Columbia is not a kind place for black people by any means, but also I didn't think that it would be. I mean, it's an Ivy League school. Its history is rooted in slavery and the subjugation of all colored persons. So why would Columbia be a nice place for a black woman? But I've had great professors. I've had a great educational experience despite the fact that my social experience has been very lackluster. And in five months, I'll be moving on. Oh, here's another question about education. Dear Viv, my GPA is lower than a 3.0. I spent a semester on academic probation and I'm a first generation American student of color. I'm the first in my family to go to college. With all the hard work that my family and ancestors put into me being here, I can't help but feel like a disappointment or that I'm struggling. Listen, I completely understand this. I was somebody that drifted through high school because I went to high school in a poor ass area. The graduation rate at my high school was 13%. It was just that I was always able to exceed because there were just so such low expectations for me and my peers. And when I got to Columbia, I really struggled. I had a hard time. I thought that maybe I wasn't as smart as I had thought I was which ended up being both true and untrue. And my second semester at Columbia, I got a 2.94, which was the worst GPA that I had ever had in my life because I had been a consistently 4.0, if not like 3.9 student for pretty much my entire educational career. And I judged the hell out of myself for it. Two things I would say to that. One, I had to make education mean something for myself and not for other people. Meaning it was very easy to parade around education and to tell everybody, oh, I got into Columbia University, I go to Columbia. And in that, it was really education for other people. It was really like, oh, I'm the first generation in my family to go to college. Like this is meaningful for my parents and for my community. But that doesn't help you after about a five weeks in. Like that doesn't give you any motivation to study. That doesn't give you a reason to go to class. It's not really going to help you get through four years, five years, six years, however long it takes you. You have to make education meaningful for yourself. You have to say, this is something that is meaningful to me. 
This is something that will help me become a better person. This is something that, that will teach me what it means to live well. And an education is a privilege no matter where you go in the world, no matter where you're being educated at. And so you're not squandering the opportunity if you're being educated. And you have to decide what being educated means. For me, it meant understanding a history of where I come from. And so I took a lot of classes on black history, on African history, but it also meant knowing my craft. I took a lot of English classes so that I could become a better writer. I wanted to know how other people wrote. I wanted to know what it meant to be a thinker. And in that, that meant taking a lot of classes that had nothing to do with anything I'd ever learned. I took a class on philology, which is the study of the history of written text. I took French, which I had no idea about. I really had to completely explore new avenues of thinking, and in that, I'm satisfied with my education. I don't know who will look at my education now and be like, oh wow, that's so impressive, those classes that you took. I didn't take one coding class or computer science class. Because after a while, education for me became less of flaunting status um, and trying to get out of the hood and became more of an experiment in self. And in that, it became a luxury, which honestly, receiving a college education is a luxury wherever you go in the world. So take full advantage of it. And also, my grades improved. Once I started looking at college as an experiment in self-confrontation and in self, I began to get 4.0s again. I have a 4.0 to this day. I've gone Dean's List every single year since then. So I would say, yeah, you just have to change your perspective. You have to let go of that whole, I'm a first generation college student narrative that you're holding on to because it won't give you the motivation that you actually need to finish. In fact, it'll keep you from finishing. Trust me, I've had too many friends do that. Dear Viv, do you have any advice for aspiring writers? I've always had a passion for sharing my opinions and ideas with the world, but considering the vulture-like energy that exists on the internet, I'm having trouble overcoming resistance. Can you share tips on discipline? Yes, I can. So the only way to become a writer is to write. I think that that's probably the hardest thing that I learned about writing. People put way too much emphasis on creative communities and sharing, but really you're a writer when you write. Whether or not you're sharing it honestly ceases to matter once you start writing. I have tons of essays that nobody will ever see that I've never published, tons of poems that I've written that'll never be read in any kind of public sphere. And again, as an artist, you have to learn to distrust your audience. The reception and critique of your audience cannot be the mainstay factor in your process of creation. You just have to write. If you're writing every day, you are a writer. And so that's the main component of being a writer. And I would probably say you're not writing as much as you should be writing. I don't write as much as I should write because I'm always like, oh, and then I have to publish it. Publishing it should be something that you consider after you write it. You cannot consider publishing before you write it, when you're writing it, or else you're a blogger. You're not a writer. That's the biggest difference I would say between writing and blogging. Bloggers are creating for an audience and they're creating for a publication. They have a word count that they have to get through to publication. They have a conceived audience in mind for publication. But writers do not. Writers write because they have to write. And so in order to be a writer, you have to write. And that's where the discipline comes in, is just sitting in and writing and not constantly critiquing yourself from the vantage point of the audience. Dear Viv, what makes a woman feel secure in a relationship? Okay, well, I think that this is a two-part question. I would say first, if a woman is going to feel secure in a relationship, she has to feel secure by 
by herself or himself or their self. You can't be in a relationship if you're insecure about yourself. It's a cliche. It's it's an unoriginal thought. You can't love other people until you love yourself or at least are in the process of loving yourself. It's true. You can't feel completely secure in a relationship if you're not secure with yourself. Point blank, period. As to what makes a woman feel secure in a partnership or romantic relationship, I would say, again, it's that she has to feel like she can be herself. The times when I felt most insecure in relationships have been when I thought that there was no way that I could actually be myself as I was without in some way altering myself to be with the other person. Any change that happens in a relationship for the other person has to be organic and it has to come out of a growing up that love just necessitates. It can't come out of a self-consciousness towards what the other person will think of you. I remember for my boyfriend, I did not take off my makeup when I slept with him the first three months that I slept with him. And to this day, I still think that is so funny. I literally would go to sleep with a full ass face of makeup on. I mean, truly imagine this. Like, I didn't care if I was staining my pillows, my white pillows. I didn't care if I woke up with eyeliner smudged under my eyes because I couldn't have him see me not in that facade. And not only was it silly and truly, truly impractical, but it was also just something that I would inevitably have to give up. That's the thing about it. Our insecurities in relationships, we inevitably have to give them up. I mean, it's one of my favorite James Baldwin quotes. Love takes off the mask that we fear we cannot live without and we know we cannot live within. And when he says we know we cannot live within, it means that we understand the impracticality of living with the facades that we build when we're trying to maintain love. And so I think that what makes a woman feel secure, especially with her partner, is when that partner says, you don't have to do that for me. They relinquish you from that responsibility of the constant facade. I think that that's what makes people feel like they're going to be okay, even when they're not okay at all. And this is the final question, which is also probably, again, the funniest of the day. Dear Viv, what are your favorite podcasts? Um, funnily enough, I don't listen to podcasts. In fact, I've listened to two podcasts in my entire life. One that I found that was a really interesting interview with Nikki Giovanni. I have no idea what podcast show it was on. And the second was um, when I was in high school, I worked for NPR and I had to interview Roman Mars that hosts this podcast that I, I think is called 99 and Invisible. And it's a podcast about architecture, the different kinds of urban planning that takes place in American cities that we sometimes don't notice. And that was the only two podcasts I had ever listened to before creating this podcast podcast. So I don't have any favorite podcasts. I guess this is my favorite podcast. I don't listen to podcasts, not on a regular basis, not really ever. But actually, funnily enough, also, I've had since I've started this podcast, a bunch of people recommending to me other podcasts that I should listen to in order to change up the format of this podcast. And so perhaps I'll listen to those podcasts, get back to you next in episode seven and tell you what my actual favorite podcasts are. So until then, just keep listening to this one. So that was as fun, exciting, confusing, and enlightening as it always is. I'm so glad if you're this far in the podcast. Episode three has been quite a wonderful journey. Thank you for everybody who contributed questions. Thank you for everybody that is listening in. Please contribute questions for our New Year's episode because I won't be making an episode for two weeks because I am going to Morocco for January, which I'm so excited about. So even though this is a long stretch, if you're in Morocco, then please hit me up and show me around. Or also if you're in Portugal or if you're in Madrid, because I'll be there for a few days during my two-week escapade as well. 
it's actually not that far-fetched because I just found out that I have a readership in Vietnam, in France, and also in Israel, which I never, ever, 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 ever would have expected um, for obvious political reasons if you read my Twitter. But shout out to you if you're listening from outside of the United States, because that means the whole entire world to me, that this is a community that is not US centric. So as always, much love, take care. Until next time, I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. I tried to drink it away. I tried to put one in the air. I tried to dance it away. I tried to change it with my hand. I wear my credit card below. Thought a new dress would make it better. I tried to work it away. But that just made me even sadder. I tried to keep myself busy. I ran around and Circles think I make myself dizzy. I slept it away. I sexed it away. I ran.